And please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. Now you may be asking yourself, did we not go through Genesis 13 already? You are correct. You've been paying close attention. I did say, though, in that sermon that I wanted to come back to these four verses. These four verses capture uh, a, a blessed uh, doctrine, a blessed teaching of Scripture that is definitely worthy of our refocusing on and bearing down on, especially because the New Testament writers refer to this in particular and in Hebrews. Uh, I will point out Hebrews in a bit, so be nimble with your Bibles. You can use the handout as I will read the portion we'll look at in Genesis, and then we'll move to uh, a bit of Hebrews to understand the underlying meaning. And this is why I'm pointing this out to you. There's something about the promise that God gives to Abram that compels Abram from this point in Genesis 13 to a new level of devotion, a new level of following God. Now, you remember, he was called from unbelief, a wandering, lost unbelief, to a purposeful redemption. Um, he had a specific, a specific mission for Abram. But there's something underlying this mission he gives that Abram, it seems at least at this moment, is realizing this. That's how Hebrews depicts it. And it's something we should get underneath of to see, too, because it's directly relevant to your belief in God's promises, in his ultimate promises, in how that affects your life today. So as I read the passage again, Hebrew, uh, Genesis 13, 14 through 18, ask this interpretive question in your mind as we're going through the text. What about this renewal of the covenant that we read with Abram? What about this compels Abram to walk the way he does going forward? Think of all the things that he's called to do by God. Uh, some significant things coming up. Something happens here that, that moves Abram in a, in a more devoted direction. Another way, another interpretive way question to ask as we're reading, as we're studying together, as we're looking at God's Word. How does Abram personally understand what God is promising him in these verses, 14 through 18? And how does it, or why does it so influence Abram as we see and witness throughout the rest of Genesis. Follow now as I read God's holy word. I'll read the Genesis passage first and refer to Hebrews in a little bit. This is God's holy word. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, there are passages that are so profound in their meaning that they just cause us to refocus again. There's something profound here in your covenant promises to Abram. Help us to rightly understand what your holy word is teaching so that our lives might be shaped accordingly. Abram and Sarai are different after this covenant renewal. May the same be true by the ministry of your word and spirit for us this day. I pray this through Christ. Amen. 
the truth that's captured here, that thing which compels Abram to a new level of devotion, has been of real personal interest to me for some time as I've um, grown with you as a congregation and walk with you through many things. Been at many funerals, many bedsides of people being sick and walking through this process from the time they were younger to older. I've been here long enough to see enough of that. I've recognized that one of the things that compels us to obey God that's so beautiful that I've seen, I've witnessed it in this congregation is just the love for the gospel, that God would remove the enmity between us and him through Christ. And the appreciation we have for what Christ has done for us really is the primary motivation probably for why we follow God, why we answer his call, why we um, do what he says, at least by his grace as well. But there's another level of motivation or something that God uses in the life of his dear ones that I've seen here among you that I hope to see continue to grow even in my own life. That is, we believe so firmly in the promises of God. He's proven himself over and over again. But we believe so firmly in the promises of God that what we are compelled by here and the here and the now and the short life we lived is the future that awaits, the guaranteed future that awaits, the ultimate heavenly city, the ultimate heavenly reality. That's what compels Abram when he hears these promises. And he's 2,000 years before he gets to see the actual fulfillment of Jesus coming, his seed. Even before that, God gives Abram faith to believe in the future Abram has, personally, so much so that it compels him for the rest of his days on earth. This is something that we have to study. This is something we should learn more about. And the author of Hebrews captures this for those who live after the time of Christ. So we can connect what we see in Abram's life with the life we live. Scholars almost uniformly will point to Abram as kind of the picture of a Christian, the exemplar believer, because of the faith that God gives him, the things he does because of the faith, the true ups and downs he has. We see that this is not a a man who's been perfected yet, still waiting for glory. Yet there's something about his walk and those ups and those downs and those times God upholds him and renews him. We could see that in the life of a believer too. And the New Testament authors draw from this as well. So what I would like us to do is look at those four verses again and then go to Hebrews and recognize why this matters for your walk today trusting in the promises of God, trusting in what God has before all of us as his people. When we grasp this, our ability to bring God glory now will be much more, it will be uplifted and will be more fruitful. That's what I believe we'll gain. What about this particular covenant renewal that we have before us compels Abram to follow God henceforth? Well, we're not left to wonder long because of the New Testament passage. You will see that faith in God's promise of eternal rest to Abram is the thing that compels him to follow God to the end of his days. Let's go to the passage now, Genesis 13. I want us to see these two passages in correlation and then draw just a few observations. Notice in Genesis 13, 14, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Remember, Abram has come back from his fleeing to Egypt because of the famine. God, by miraculous means, brings him back to the promised land, brings him in renewal. It says, now stop and look at everything. Everything your eyes can see, northward and southward and eastward and westward. Abram, everything you can lay eyes on. Verse 15, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. 
all this land promised to you, Abram. It's such a bold promise. I mean, this is a time when people moved around. There were chieftains over small little city-states, and they were nomadic, and they moved around. They didn't settle very many places. There were a few big cities, but not many. And God is saying, all this land, that you know what there are people inhabiting it. This is a land I'm giving to you and to your offspring. It's very personal. To you, Abram, you will have this land that you can see with your physical eyes. This isn't just a, a figurative land in the sense of there's some kind of match with it that you, don't, you can't connect yet. This, you see this? This is yours and to your offspring. There's more. Verse 16. I will make you make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Now, this is Abram. He's pushing 100 years old. 100 years old. And God's still promising him offspring at this point. And here's the thing. Abram believes him. Abram believes him. He and Sarah haven't even had one kid yet, and now he's promising an uncountable posterity. But it's clear all the while that Abram believes God's promises. It says in verse 17, Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land. Now lest we just make this a fulfillment that will happen in his children, and Abram won't really taste any of it, look at what it says very specifically in the language. For I will give it to you. In verse 15 he referred to, and your offspring. Here it's very clearly, very explicitly, Abram, I'm going to give you this land in offspring that are innumerable. I'm going to give it to you. It's noteworthy that God is promising him something so specifically here. I will give it to you. It's a realized tone that God promises as he promises. How did Abram understand these promises? Was God telling him something just figuratively that wouldn't really happen in his life or he wouldn't get to experience it himself? Um, Was this just going to be fulfilled in his children? Well, it couldn't be all his children because Isaac never really experienced it the way he's describing. Jacob never really experienced the way Joseph actually ended up going, leading him back to Egypt. So in particular, what is it that God's saying here that's so intentional, so specific that Abram lays hold of, but yet Abram believes him, believes what he's saying. Rise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land. I will give it to you, Abram. What is he promising? What is Abram understanding him to say? That's the question I asked you to think about. What is Abram thinking? You know how things unfolded and how the particulars worked in those times, yet Abram's believing him for something very specific, very true. What are we to make of this personal promise? Well, I think F.F. Bruce does a great job of now connecting what Abram was thinking about when God gave these promises to what the New Testament reveals. This is what Abram understood. Listen to how Bruce puts it. The truth is, their true homeland was not on earth at all. The better country on which they had set their hearts was the heavenly country. Abram knew Yahweh talking to him was telling him something that was far greater than what he could even conceive of. It was real, and he would really experience it. His offspring really would be innumerable. It was for him, but there's something even greater than this earth could describe that God is describing to Abram. Bruce says, The earthly Canaan and the earthly Jerusalem were but temporary object lessons pointing to the saints' everlasting rest the well-founded city of God. Abram knew this 
was what the ultimate promise was. Now, you and I might not have been able to gather that, but because the New Testament, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer of Hebrews, tells us what Abram understood. Now it makes sense. That's why Abram could do what he could do, what he did, and obey God like he did, because he knew what was coming, this heavenly country, not just the land that he could see and only mankind knew. Bruce said also the example of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. The example of the patriarchs is intended to guide the readers of the epistle of Hebrews to a true sense of values. The way they looked at their existence on the earth will help us understand our existence on the earth and what God calls us to. Notice, none of the patriarchs hid away waiting for the heavenly country. They lived their lives as God commanded them, with the ups and the downs. But they knew there was an ultimate reality. That's what compelled them to follow God in the here and the now. That heavenly vision, when we gather that, will compel us to obey God that way as well. It's true. The gospel is enough to make us respond to God with obedience. He works that. But he gives us a gospel expectation, too, of the heavenly country to come. And that's what makes Abram's faith different than what we might think of as, as, oh, the normal faith, if you will. This is looking ahead to what he cannot see, both in the person of Christ to come and the heavenly expectation that God promises him with this promise of the land. Now, look at Hebrews. It's on your insert. And let's walk through Hebrews 11, starting at verse 8, down to verse 16. Now, bear in mind what you know now from Hebrews 13, as we've been through it a couple times now. Hebrews 11, starting at verse 8. It says, by faith, by trust, by belief in God's promises, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. This is his initial call in chapter 12. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. Verse 9, by faith, by trust, by belief in God, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. The patriarchs followed God, they believed in God's promises, and they went to an unknown place, and even though they didn't ever get to settle down there personally, they knew that God was promising them a settlement eventually. God called Abram to salvation, God called Abram to a new country. Verse 10, and this is the key interpretive passage so we can understand what's happening in Genesis. This will be important for interpreting Genesis as we continue. The writer of Hebrews says, for he, Abram, was looking forward to the city that has foundations. Earthly cities don't have real foundations. They come and they go. They rise and they fall. There's nothing forever about an earthly city. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The designer and builder is not Lamech. The designer and builder is not Tubal Cain. The designer and builder is not Nimrod who made Babel. No more of those cities. That's not who Abram's looking for. He knows about those cities. What he's looking forward to by God's promise is a city that has real foundations, eternal foundations, because the designer and the builder is Yahweh. That's who he's looking forward to. That's completely better than anything you got in, you can imagine right now. Presidents don't make countries great or build them back better. Only God can do these things. And that's the country we should care about, the one that God's built, and that you're made a citizen of. But I get ahead of myself. Canlish, R.S. Canlish, who's a great Presbyterian commentator, he wrote concerning this passage in Hebrews. 
it can scarcely be doubted that there is something more here than the promise of the earthly Canaan to Abram's seed after the flesh. Klein said, it becomes clear that the kingdom promised to Abraham, like that in Eden's garden of God, is a paradise domain flowing with milk and honey, a new heaven and earth with river and trees of life, having as its glory the Shekinah presence of the Lord enthroned himself. That's what Abram's looking forward to. That's what compels him to obey God to the point of even almost sacrificing his son. Because he knows that the God of himself is a resurrecting God. He'll resurrect him, he'd resurrect his son if he needed to, but that's the God he follows. And we see it throughout the faith that he exemplifies. Again, verse 10 of Hebrews 11. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. Let this be said of us. For we are looking for the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's who the people of God long for. And that shapes how you live the rest of your days. That's our citizenship. Now, we've got purpose right now. There's much God calls us to. But we can do all those things in obedience to him because we know what's coming. We believe what's coming because he's done nothing but fulfill his promises. So certainly he'll fulfill that. And Abram knew this far before he had the revelation that you and I have. Look at verse 11, talking now about Sarah. By faith, by trust in God's promises, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Verse 12, therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as his as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Of course this isn't just talking about Israelites. who this are the, All those who by faith rest in Christ are the sons and daughters of Abram. From them came a nation. The Messiah comes through them. From the Messiah came many sons and daughters of Abraham. Now remember back to Genesis thirteen seventeen. I will give it to you. Now Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. On the surface level, wait a minute. Abraham didn't get all this land. He didn't. Isaac, Jacob, it says in verse 13, there's an explanation. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They got their place. They were called out of the nations. They understood their purpose. They were to be people who pointed to God. They were to be a center point for the earth to look and see where Yahweh resided, to see where salvation could be found. That was their role until God brought the new heavens and the new earth. Until then, they were exiles. They were living in tents, literally and figuratively. That's the people of God are called to live this way on this earth, pointing everyone to Yahweh, longing for the country that is still to come the heavenly country. Their vision of a new heaven and a new earth is what compelled them to follow God. That's what drove Abram. That's what drove Sarah. That's what drove the patriarchs. Candlish, who I've quoted often, and I will quote again here, said the apostles' reasoning here in Hebrews would lead us to postpone the fulfillment of the promise now in question till after the resurrection. The ultimate promise in Genesis 13, 14 through 18 is the final resurrection, the restored heavens and earth. That's what, ultimately, Abram knew to look for because God gave him faith to do so. There would be tastes, foretastes of heaven along the way. His offspring would experience, the people of God experience, but they're mere foretastes, not the final. Candlish said plainly, therefore, beyond all doubt, 
the faith and hope of Abraham had reference to what he was to receive after the resurrection. I will give you this land, from verse 17, must be understood as having reference to the inheritance then to be enjoyed. That's how far ahead he was looking, and it compelled him to live out the days we read in Genesis. All these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Verse 14, for people who speak this way, that they look forward to the eternal kingdom, for people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They're not stuck here, they're moving through here. We're a bit restless here because we're looking for our homeland. We're looking for that home. That's, what we, that's the demeanor we have as believers. This is what Abram expresses throughout his life. Verse 16 of Hebrews 11. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. We don't despise this one. We know our calling to it. God's called us to have impact on it. But we're looking for a better country. That is a heavenly one, it says in verse 16. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. As we declare that God's promises are true and this is coming and we live for this, that justifies what God has said. Now, he gives us the faith to say these things and do these things. But make no mistake, God is not ashamed to be called their God, those who trust in his faithful promises. For he has prepared for them, for you, a city. They knew what God was promising ultimately, and they knew it in Genesis 13 in 2000 BC. Abram knew it. Since that time, brothers and sisters, we've got way more biblical revelation. Far more of the promises of God are obvious to us. The ultimate being the coming of the seed, who does exactly what's forecasted on our behalf, redeems us, and then rises again, ascends to the right hand of the Father from there, making the nations a footstool as this church works to be the salt, the light, the, the ambassadors we're called to be. We get to, we've seen all this in action. He's calling on us to believe in the heavenly country that he's going to bring us to and not fall in love with this one, not fall in love with this world. This world is a joke compared to what's coming. It's, it's so fading. If we can't see that in our recent days, what can we see? But there's so many years of our lives, in my cush life, that I could be pretty comfortable here. But it's, not, it's a trash heap compared to the heavenly country. So we look forward to that. We don't get tied down to anything here. And we move forward looking to what God will establish. Because he will establish it as sure as he's kept all of his promises. What motivated Abram to keep following God's lead? What compelled Abram to obey God? What promoted a growing faith in God, in the person of Abram? What kept Abram engaged in his faith in God? What led Abram to follow God? He believed in God's promise of redemption, and he believed in God's gospel expectation to bring a new heaven and a new earth where he would finally have actual citizenship, where he was no longer restless. Candlish said, the promise of heaven of the heavenly inheritance, the heavenly rest, the heavenly country, the heavenly city, how congenial, how appropriate, and how soothing it felt. I want to just draw three brief, direct applications from what I've said, and they're there on the outline for you. First, let's just consider a moment as a checkpoint, as a challenge, the universal issue of restlessness everyone in this room experiences and everyone on earth experiences. It's lesser so for Christians because we've been relieved of some of that restlessness, but we nevertheless experience it. We saw it in Abram, 
who was saved, but got restless and went back to Egypt. Also, I want us to appreciate the challenge of living as people who are created for another citizenship. Uh, This is not your citizenship. That's why you feel out of place oftentimes. Finally, I want us to see the hope of eternal rest that we're speaking of here, that we're seeing here, and how it makes us useful for the glory of God in this life. It gives us a purpose in this life, a mission in this life. First of all, don't forget the universal problem of restlessness that everyone, your neighbors, yourself, everyone you know, deals with at some level. It's part of living post-fall. Before sin entered, the state of creation was in a a very efficient, beautiful balance. After sin entered, an immediate imbalance took place. Corruption unfolded. The state of humankind ever since then has struggled with this. Uh, It could be described in many ways, but I like to say restless is a great way to describe what people feel about the condition of the cosmos, including themselves now. Creation is restless since the fall since without mankind at optimum capacity can no longer be tended and kept. Creation is said to be groaning in Romans 8. Humankind is restless too. Sin corrupted our nature and disrupted our everything, our thinking, our desires, our intellectual capacity, our physical capacity. Sin disrupted and marred our relationship with creation, with each other, and most importantly with our God. Restless is a good description of what every human being experiences in a fallen world as fallen creatures. We're agitated beings. We're uneasy. We're tense. We're insecure. You ever notice the old moniker on, on gravestones, R.I.P., rest in peace, meaning that the person who died has finally escaped the unrest of the life they were living. Now maybe they could rest, so the moniker goes. We worry. We're anxious. We lack peace of mind. Rest and peace go together. We're a troubled race, living in a cosmos that is chaotic and relatively out of control. You see the restlessness all around you in society. It's on the streets, it's in the schools, it's in the halls of justice and outside the halls of justice. There's international unrest, restlessness online, personal unrest in the people of earth. Human existence is restless. And Abram was no different. He was restless when God called him. When God called him, he was lost and wandering and worshiping the moon. And God called him from that and said, go to a land that I will give you. Leave your father and your kindred and what that life is behind. And come follow me. And in you, all the families of earth will be blessed. So by the faith given to him, Abram went as the Lord had told him. So now he receives a bit of rest right with God, in communication with God. But even Abram, after this point, and even you, after coming to Christ, will still struggle with feeling out of place and restless because your goals as God's given to you are different with the, with the world's goals and what's celebrated. You'll have restlessness in relationships. You'll have restlessness about your own inability to see sin completely defeated in this life. There's still restlessness that happens to us. So now when we come to a believer struggling like Abram, he gives him this assurance, Abram, I know you want a land that you don't have to be protective of the Canaanites and the Perizzites or Pharaoh. I know you want a land where your family could could rest and have peace and multiply. I know you want this because this isn't experienced on earth, this side of sin. There is no rest for people on earth. But Abram, I'm going to give you that rest. I'm going to give you this land as far as you can see it, and your offspring will have it forever. 
eventually he's saying it's all going to be realized and more compared to the short life you live. And he lived a lot longer than us. But the short life you live, it'll just be a blip in that regard and you will have this rest ultimately. Yes, believers will struggle with this, but recognize you will have some restlessness. And it goes to the next point I want to make that I've been been alluding to, but I think it needs to be said explicitly. Notice something that comes in the Hebrews passage that identifies their experience. This is the challenge of a Christian's true citizenship in the world. Uh, Even though it's spelled out in Scripture, I find believers oftentimes feel like there's a certain level of of truce they can have with the world and they can feel comfortable in the world. I'm not saying to be belligerent or constantly um, counter everything that the culture throws or anything like that, but I'm suggesting that any true walk with Christ will necessarily cause you to rub against the citizenship of earth because the citizenship of earth has a different priority, has a different outlook on what is important. I have a good friend who I talk to on a regular basis is not a believer, and he tells me all, all his decisions are made on the fact he only lives so far, so long, and then it's all over at that point, and there's nothing after it. And that affects his decisions in his life and his outlook and his approach to people and such and so forth. For the believer, our citizenship still awaits the fulfillment of it's here. So that drives how we are in this temporary place where we're heading. Then we listen to where our Father tells us, who's given us this heavenly citizenship, how to conduct ourselves now. It says in Hebrews 11 verse 13, And having acknowledged, Abram and Sarai and the patriarchs, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. It doesn't say in the here and the now, as Israel starts to grow as a nation, that they would ever feel otherwise. The the promise for citizenship is in the future. We're called to sojourn here. That's what you're doing. You're sojourning sojourning here with great purpose, great impact, in effect, wherever God has placed you. But you are sojourning. This is not your final home. 1 Peter 2, the apostle says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, talking to Christians, to abstain from the passions of the flesh with which wage war against your soul. You're a sojourner on earth, and you're going to, in your flesh, doesn't even blame the world, just says in your flesh you'll still struggle with sin. You'll have restlessness you deal with that's part of the fact that you're tasting the eternal country that is to come. And you know there you won't have this restlessness, but you still have it. So wage war against that while you're living in this. Don't, don't rest while you're on this earth. Rest will come, but don't rest now. There's no rest for the wicked. And the righteous don't really need it. Because we keep striving. We war against the flesh. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. When you hear that verse, don't think our citizenship is in an ethereal, floating around existence with chubby little angels in the clouds. That's not heaven. Heaven is the eternal country. It's the new heavens and the new earth. It's the recreated cosmos, all made now in perfect balance to be the backdrop for God's glory and his people living in it. That's what we're looking forward to. Our citizenship is there, so much better than here. But we are called here to live according to God's call. In fact, the only citizenship we're really talked about on this earth is what Paul says in Ephesians. You are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. This relationship you have with your fellow brothers and sisters is the most important relationship you have. And so we come together on the Lord's Day, a day of rest, to be a foretaste of what will ultimately come in our rest together, the household of God. There are foretastes that we have 
from time to time. Little tastes that we have. They're not, they're real and what we experience, they're just not the full real thing that's still to come. Meredith Klein said the object of Abraham's faith longing was not any earthly turf of this evil world age, but a better heavenly country, the city of the new age, the creation of God still to come. Finally, I want you to notice, hopefully this has been building to this point, you see it naturally already. The hope of eternal rest makes us useful now for God's glory in this life. Eternal rest doesn't mean we lay low now. It's the opposite. It means we go full throttle now for God's glory, whatever that means. Tough stuff could come against us, but we know what the eternal country is. So we're able to uphold that. We're able to command, we're able to follow God's commands. We're able to lay ourselves down for other people. We're allowed to do, we could do all sorts of things. Do you, you wonder why Abram had no trouble giving Lot any pick of the land? Abram's like, who cares about this land? I'll take whatever you don't take because this isn't the final land. He didn't hang on to this land because he knew the final land to come was way greater than what he just saw there in Palestine. His demeanor is completely changed. His perspective and his actions change by what he knows to be an eternal truth. We talk the talk, but we don't always really ask God for the faith to believe it. In warning, if you ask God for the faith to believe it, he just might bring some things into your life that will loosen you from the stuff you love that doesn't really matter. In Colossians, Paul writes to that church initially and to us by extension, if then you have been raised with Christ, if you've been raised with Christ, you believe that you're resurrected in him unto new life, seek the things that are above them, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. See through that angle. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, he says to believers, when Christ, who is your life, when he appears, Then you also will appear with him in glory. What's glory? It's the heavenly city. It's the eternal city. And here's the challenge to us on this last point. We have to let go of our love of this world. And I don't mean worldliness. I mean just the love of the stuff of earth. Now, it's okay to enjoy the stuff of earth, but it's just the stuff of earth. It's going to be gone. I think often about the things that I accumulate and how no one will care about them just minutes after I die. I've told you, I'm sure my deer heads eventually will be in some Applebee's with beer cans on the antlers. Son, don't let me down on this. I'm expecting the next generation, maybe at least two generations. This stuff's going to burn. It's not that important. Use it for his glory and however we can. We're at home in this world too often, and this is what makes us ineffective. We can easily make this world our home, forgetting that a much, much, much better one is awaits us. We're enamored with things seen rather than that which is unseen. We have to recover our, our identity as strangers in exiles. When we remember that we're, we're sojourners here, we're less apt to place our hope in our earthly dwellings, in our earthly existence. Our present home, this is a tent. We're living in tents like the patriarchs, transient and temporary, but filled with purpose, what God calls us to do. My daughter and I listen to music on the way to school, and one song she always asks for is called Home by City of Light. It's interesting that a 12-year-old would uh, ask for this. I think she likes the tune and such, but listen to the words. They're profound. Yes, I am running. Running where? Running home. Jesus, bring me safely home. Jesus, you have run the race, perfect love and perfect faith. We are weary, you are strong. In your grace we carry on. Oh, we sing together now. Yes, I am running. Won't be long till I am home. Looking forward to being home. 
purposeful running now, not resting, not sleeping, not hiding in a boat in, in, underneath our covers, but I'm running. But what I'm running for is ultimately home. And this isn't our home. The God of Abram prays him that I have us sing all the time. Thomas Olivers wrote these words, The heavenly land I see, with peace and plenty blessed, a land of sacred liberty and endless rest. There milk and honey flow, and oil and wine abound, and trees of life forever grow, with mercy they are crowned. The heavenly city, the heavenly country, the eternal new cosmos. John said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. John said, I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, verse 9, Emmanuel was there. That's Emmanuel's land that we're going to. What do we do in response to what we're seeing here? Well, lift up our eyes, arise, and go. And what did Abram do? He, he built an altar to the Lord. Focus me, Lord, on the promises that you have given me. What has Jesus told us to do while we await the heavenly city? He says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And I will be with you always, Jesus says to us, even to the end of the age. And at the end of the age is where we experience the new heavens and the new earth. We have our purpose. We know what God's called us to. Makes sense since I've quoted him so much to close with the words of R.S. Candlish once again. He says and compels the reader, Now therefore, believers, behold your father Abraham in virtue of the two promises he has received. First, conveying to him the gospel blessing of free justification. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Second, the gospel expectation of an eternal inheritance. Let us pray. Father, we are moved by the faith that you gave Abram. We pray for the same kind of faith. We do so even with some trepidation, understanding that this faith will jar us from a love of the world, a love of our earthly dwellings. Lord, give us a faith that is firmly anchored in your promise of salvation through Christ and a faith that is ever ready to behold the glorious culmination of the ages and the culmination of your eternal promise of citizenship in the new heavens and the new earth. Oh Lord, give us a longing for glory through your sure promise of eternal rest, give us a bold obedience to follow you today, no matter where you might lead us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's together turn in our hymnals as we prepare for the Lord's